You're listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with Outfluencer, Dr. Wayne Purnell. Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most. This is Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, your host, the Outfluencer and your powerful presence mentor. Today, I am so honored to have with me a friend of mine, a gentleman that I met many years ago. He is making a tremendous impact in the world. He, it seems like that's what he does. That's his, his life and his legacy is to make a huge impact. Um, this man has been a Green Beret. He is a retired Lieutenant Colonel, David Scott Mann. Welcome to One Sharp Sword. Thanks for being here. It's just good to be with you again. It's been, it has been too long. It has been too long. It's really, it's really good to see you. It's good to have you here. Um, these are, we were talking before we started the recording for the podcast. And we were talking about the troubling times. You know, obviously we've come through a year of pandemic, but there's also uh, you know, this this whole climate, and it's not just, people forget that it's a pandemic. It's not just in the United States. Right. Um, this whole kind of feeling, I don't want to start on a downer, but I think it's it's a reality. There's this yeah. feeling of of trust being low is, is what we we're talking about. So yeah. talk a little bit about your history and how you were able to, to uh, build trust even when that was not a that was not a thing you know so your history is amazing and i i really want to share that with our audience oh thank you i you know i i had the 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 good fortune wayne to to pursue a dream that i'd had since i was a 14 year old little boy growing up in a logging town in arkansas uh mount ida by the way uh and um it was, it was a dream of being a Green Beret. And uh, the, the reason that dream came to pass or even got started was a, a Green Beret just happened to walk into our soda shop uh, in that little one-horse town that didn't even have a stoplight. And, and he had his uniform on and his bloused boots. And, you know, uh, I caught a glimpse of his green hat as he, as he stuffed it in his waistband and just kind of sauntered in. And, and, and I tell you, in that moment right there, uh, I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do. And I was, a, you know, a, truly a runt of a kid, uh, it, the most unlikely of candidates to, to go do that. I probably weighed 105 pounds soaking wet. And, uh, but this guy sat down with me, his name was Mark. You know, I went up to him and I talked to him and, and I was just enamored by his presence, the way he carried himself. And you know how it is, you see someone like that and you just, there's something about them and when he sat down and, and it was really when he started to tell me about what he did that I became so fascinated even more. And, and he talked about Green Berets and how they're different than SEALs, you know, and, and Rangers and, and Delta, the folks you see in the movies, how they go in, they kick doors down, they take a target out, and then they come off the target very quickly. They usually do the mission themselves. And, and Mark explained to me that Green Berets, uh, their expertise is unconventional warfare guerrilla warfare. So they, they parachute into occupied territory behind enemy lines with just like 12 guys uh, and they and girls, and they get connected uh, or they get surrounded on purpose. They immerse themselves like in the language, the culture, the environment, and they help the little guy stand up for the big guy, you know, and, and that, uh, that became uh, a real fascination for me, this notion of helping indigenous people 
stand up on their own and fight back. That's fantastic. It's amazing. You know, you talk about, you talk about Mark and I find myself sitting up a little straighter, even as you're telling his story. It's like, that's awesome. So you, you entered the service. There was no guarantee that you'd be a Green Beret. I mean, so, I mean, you had to be super dedicated to, to get there. Yeah, right. I mean, and uh, I, if I don't know if you can hear it or not, I got a, I got the I got the 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 lawn mower going in the background here, so it's the it's more more COVID surprise <laughs> that we all get these days. Um, but yeah. uh, you know, there was not a guarantee. In fact, um, you know, one of the things about Special Forces Ranger School, the SEALs, is that it's almost a guarantee you won't make it. It, it is very very selective, and I again, I was not. You know, I didn't appear to have the acumen for it. I was very skinny, very scrawny, um, no military background. And in fact, I failed every school I went to leading up to special forces, failed special forces training twice and had to be recycled. Um, And, you know, it was very, very difficult and it took a long time to make it through. But I eventually did. And I spent the next, um, you know, of my 23 years in the Army, 18 of that as a Green Beret. And I deployed to Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, um, uh, Iraq, multiple tours in Afghanistan. And I loved it, man. I, I loved every second of it. I, I served with some of the most amazing leaders in the world. But, you know, really, Wayne, what, what I came out of it with more than anything else, looking back on it now, is I learned how to read people. I learned how to, I learned how to connect very, very deeply. And, and, and I learned how to do it in places where trust was so low that if you didn't make a connection in like five minutes, you might end up dead. And, and that to this day, I'm so grateful for because I do believe leadership in low trust situations is one of the biggest crises we're facing as leaders here in the United States, whether you're a PTA leader or whether you're a politician or somewhere in between, uh, leading in low trust is going to be the order of the day for quite a while. That's amazing. That's amazing. You, you, your history, you have an amazing story about being dropped in the middle of what would be enemy territory with 12 guys. And you have, uh, you explained at one point the idea of insiders, outsiders, and interlopers. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that is just conceptually, it is so worth sharing if you can talk a little bit about what was, what, what brought you to create what is now rooftop leadership yeah. and you know what I'm asking you, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. so, so what actually brought me to rooftop leadership, I'll start with that. And then I'll, then I'll work it because as you're listening to this, you know, trust as a leader is, is everything right. And, and, and whether that's with your clients, your associates, your kids, your, your spouse, whatever, um, trust is, is, is a biological necessity, but there's a lot about trust that we've lost connection with and we've lost understanding of. It's, it's not enough to just instinctively build trust. And I know that because we screwed it up as Green Berets after 9-11. We were so angry after what the Tal- uh, excuse me, Al-Qaeda did to the United States with that attack that my best, one of my best friends was killed in the Pentagon, Cliff Patterson. And, um, you know, it, it set me on a path of vengeance, of payback. And, and I, I got to tell you that most uh, of my brothers and sisters felt the same way. 
whether we were Rangers, Green Berets, you know, whatever our missions were before, it, that was not the mission now. Now the mission was to walk the enemy down and put it, you know, and kill as many of them as we could. And that's exactly what we did for 10 years in Afghanistan. We pursued a strategy, Wayne, that was mostly top down, i.e. it was, I'm from the government, how do you like me so far, uh, into these rural villages. And um, rather than using kind of our by, with, and through T.E. Lawrence of Arabia skills, we used more of the Rambo skills. And we found ourselves after 10 years that the, the local Afghan tribes were more of a, they were more of an antibody to stability mm. than they were an accelerant, you know, and, and, and they were closer to working with the Taliban than they were to us because the Taliban seemed to understand them better. So I tell you all that, right? Because we were losing the war in 2010, we looked around and there were more Taliban in the rural areas than when we started the whole invasion. So we had to reframe everything. We had to rethink everything. And that meant uh, getting back to our roots. And I was fortunate enough to be selected with a handful of Green Berets um, that designed and implemented a strategy uh, called Village Stability Operations. And uh, you've heard me talk about it. It's in, it's in my book, uh, Game Changers, that I, that I wrote about the war. And it's all about how we went local to uh, – to win the Afghan tribes back over. We kind of think of it as like a modern day Magnificent Seven type approach. I mean, we moved into these communities, we grew our beards out and we really got back to our roots, which was working by, with and through the locals. And it was hard. I mean, it was so hard because trust was depleted. A lot of them were, 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 in were in trauma and shock from years of warfare. Others didn't trust us. But one by one, these we started in six villages, um, but one by, you know, we would go up on the rooftops and fight when the village would get attacked and no Afghans would follow. But then if we just kept doing that, especially when we took casualties of ourselves, then you'd yeah. see one farmer go up on the roof and defend his home and then another farmer. And then eventually the entire village fighting back the way they were designed to do. And I started calling that rooftop leadership. And, and so that's the first part of, of that story because you know, it was, it went from six villages to 113 villages, 75 farmers to 32,000 in 18 months. And we really made an impact on the Taliban in a big way. A lot of those sites are still there to this day with Green Berets, you know, working there. So, and that was 10 years ago. So I'll pause there, but I mean, that's what, that's where rooftop leadership came from is, is inspiring people to take a stand that they otherwise wouldn't take because they choose to do it, not because they have to do it. And now we need that. We, the world, need regular humans to stand up and go, this is what I believe in. That's right. And, and, right. and you know where that came from and where that comes from, and this is what I hope leaders will, will hear loud and clear, is you know, it was not in the fight that the Afghans found their resolve uh, to do that. And, and to go up on the rooftop. Where, where it came from was, was in a couple of places. One, those Green Berets had the intestinal fortitude to go up on the rooftop and stand their ground even when no one followed. And I believe that's a message that leaders need to hear today, is that we need to be willing to go up on our own rooftop yeah. and, and defend what we know to be right for the greater good, even when nobody follows. That's a, you know, command and leadership is a very lonely endeavor. And, and, and 
and, and in the beginning, especially until people find the courage and their legs to climb that ladder, we have to stand up there alone. That's number one. And then number two, where a lot of these folks, I believe, found the resolve to go up on the on the on that rooftop. And by the way, they were facing um, you know heavy machine gun fire. They were facing. I mean, they they were going to have to stand with people they didn't trust really that much, um, at least in the beginning. And they were going to face certain retribution against their families and their children. I mean, so there was a lot at stake here, but they did it. And and the reason I think they did it more than anything else, Wayne, was the was the human connection the relationships that were built before the gunfight. And, and I think that's the message I'm trying to get across to Americans right now and people all over the world is that relationships and human connection are the most important commodities and assets we can develop and relevance to the people we serve is what we should be striving for as we do that. You know, forget about being the most experienced, forget about being the best, forget about being, you know, whatever metric is how relevant are you to the people you serve and how connected are you to them? And if you are, then there's a good chance they'll follow you when, when risk is high and trust is low. That's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, relationships is, is a theme of, of this podcast, <laughs> the one sharp sword cutting through to what matters most and what comes up over and over again is relationships. I've had um, senior leaders of major organizations as guests and it's like, we could have power played it, but what matters is the relationship. And I think that that's, that's huge. And I will tell you, Wayne, um, I, I told the, the, the cradle to grave story from nine 11 all the way up until village stability and rooftop came into play for a reason, you know, and, and this is what I tell skeptical corporate leaders today who, who look across me like, Oh, this is soft skill stuff. This is kumbaya stuff. And I'm like, look, check it out. For the first 10 years of the Afghan war, I focused on shooting people in the face. Right. So I know what that coercion looks like. Mm. And I'm here to tell you, not only did it fail, it was epic fail. And, and, and 10 years in, there were more of the enemy than when we started. So you tell me, right, the, the epitome of coercion, which is surgical lethality, killing the enemy, put us in a position where there were more of the enemy than when we started. Yet when we, when we changed to relationship-based approach and standing shoulder to shoulder with people and empowering them to take action, these were the same people that were shooting at us two years prior, right? And, and now they're up on the roof with us. So I guess what I'm saying here is that, like, that what works in life and death works in life and business. You know, humans are remarkably similar in how we're wired to navigate the world. And, and all we were in was a low trust Petri dish of what we're in right now. Yeah, amazing. Um, now you talked about trust, which is another thing. So bringing it, you know, you talked about uh, in groups, out groups, and and one of the things that we had to do, Wayne, to get into these villages, and I had the good fortune uh, to experience was as we were scaling this program up, moving into these villages, um, we had to really ask ourselves some hard questions, like how do we overcome these trust deficits that have been built for years? I mean, these people have been at war for forty years. We had pissed a lot of them off by how we had approached it for ten years. How do we overcome those things? And what we did was we partnered with a lot of social scientists, a lot of psychologists, a lot of behavioral psychologists, a lot of dispute resolution experts. And we really started anthropologists, 
we started studying human nature. And what we recognized was what our mutual friend Bo Eason has always said, which is we, we've gotten away from our nature. Like we don't understand if human nature is an iceberg, like the tip of the iceberg is the modern world we live in, but like 80% of who we actually are is below the surface. It's that primal, you know, the creature that worries about scarcity, the creature that worries about honor, the revenge, feud, hospitality, you know, it's, it's that creature that is primal and, and, and trust is actually primal, you know, and if we don't understand that trust for the most part is, you know, animals trust, mammals trust each other. They have packs, they have groups, they have, and humans have clans. And so your in-group is your primary trust unit. And it has been for a quarter million years. This experiment of America that we live in got us beyond our in-group and gave us a mechanism to trust beyond our race, our religion. But it's not permanent and it's not a natural state of affairs. And as our leaders moved away from that bridging, what we call bridging trust that we have here in the country, it started mm. to go back to this bonding feudal trust. And so we're in a, we're in a trust crisis right now. And uh, if we don't get it figured out, uh, there's some rough times ahead for this country and for and for really for leaders across the world. Did you ever feel like you couldn't say what you wanted to say? Not because you didn't have the words, but because you weren't sure if it was okay to say them? You might have felt like you wanted more in your life, like you wanted more from your life. You're not alone. It's time to stop asking for permission to live and to step into who you deserve to be at home, at work, and in the world. There's a wonderful online group program People just like you joined because they also felt like they wanted to do more, have more, and be more. The ache is real. And the hope, action, and outcome, the breakthrough to success, that's all real too. Join the Powerful Presence program now. It's an hour a week for three months. Details are at PowerfulPresence.com. Go to PowerfulPresence.com to register today. PowerfulPresence.com You know, I, I don't tend to tread far into politics yeah. uh, on this. That said, are, isn't it about a shared or a unified vision? I mean, isn't that how you build the trust? You you know, the you're dropped into, there's 12 guys, you're dropped into the middle of a, of a, of <laughs> of a town, basically a community where they could just take you out and somehow you develop relationships. It's very similar to where we are now, where we all have to believe in something. And right now it seems like we're all very scattered in, in what our beliefs are. Yeah. So that's a great, great way to frame it. And, and, you know, again, I think the more we can understand the real essence of trust as leaders, the more we can navigate our world a bit differently. And the first thing is I would say to anyone listening to this is take a look around the world right now as people are storming Capitol Hill, as people are punching each other in the face if they get cut off in traffic or unfriending someone on Facebook for wearing a mask or not wearing a mask who they've been friends with for 30 years. Take a look at all that and ask yourself honestly, am I okay to hand this to my kids? 
Mm. Right. Like just look at that. Just look at the, you know, don't get into all the Fox News, CNN stuff. Just look at your just look at your arena, like right around you and go, am I leaving this better than I found it? And if the answer is yes, then, you know, I got nothing for you. If the answer is like, I'm not good with this, then I think we then we can start with something here. And what we got to start with is how does how does trust actually happen? And and what we learned in Afghanistan is. You know, truck groups form in places like Afghanistan because you don't have enough resources and you need resources to survive. So groups form to acquire and maintain resources. All mammals do it. Humans do it better than any. So we sit on top of the food chain. And over the years, as we've socially evolved, we've gotten better and better at grouping. Now, you know this as a psychologist better than anybody that oxytocin, you know, serotonin, dopamine, a lot of these, uh, you know, these molecules, um, you know, they really, uh, they they have an effect on how we group and how, you know, reward behavior for for grouping or don't group. Right. Um, And the thing is, we, we group around scarcity of resources and status. Those are two primal things that drive human behavior. And they always have. So, you know, because we have to survive. And what we saw in Afghanistan is you have these different tribes, these different clans, and they'll kill each other all day long over resources. But if you can find something to rally around, to unify around, um, then people will. And 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 that was what we found ourselves being that catalyst that would bridge beyond those in-groups and find something, whether it was a, a hydrology project that benefited the whole village um, or the ability to defend against outside invaders, but something that bridges and that we can rally around. And that's what you're talking about. That's how you go from bonding trust, which is deep, not wide. And it's like you only trust the people in your circle. And frankly, it's corrosive and will destroy an organization from the inside out. It's the primal form of trust to bridging trust where you bridge beyond your in-group, you bridge beyond your race, your, your religion. And it's you, you're able to bridge because you're unified around something that, that you can rally on. That's great. That's great. Cause it's easy. It's easy now to be polarized. You know, it's like, we sh- there's a giant should, we should all figure out that COVID might be something to fight against. And yet, right. There seems to be very, polar ways of either fighting it or fighting against uh, it. Right. And so, you know, really it's about, don't we all just want to survive? Like it's, it's, it, maybe it's a bigger, a biggie, a bigger rally, you know, cry. So so now we're getting at something super, super important. What happens is, you know, you're seeing a lot of fear-based behavior. Yes take place. And, and yes. remember that iceberg we talked about prior is when cortisol goes up and testosterone goes down and we settle into that, that sympathetic state of fight, flight, or freeze, which so many Americans and citizens of the world are in today. That, you know, without even realizing it, we go into basically a, tr- a, a trance, a tribal trance, and we drop down below the waterline and we get as primal as 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 our ancestors were 200,000 years ago when they were moving against each other on the Serengeti plain right with with war clubs in hand we get just that we go there we all go there we all 
revert back to our primal nature when life gets seriously scary. And, and it's just what we do. And the only way out of that, in my opinion, and this is what we learned as Green Berets, is if you don't train to recognize those primal tendencies, then you will get sucked into them just like anybody else. If somebody, you know, you know, if somebody gets in your face long enough, you'll redline your emotional temperature just like they will. And all of a sudden you start mirroring each other and you're both jacked on emotional temperature and you're caught up in what I call that churn. And, and so as, as a leader, you know, we have to recognize that when that starts to happen, step back from it and manage our own emotional temperature, whether it's three lower body breaths or whatever, and not get sucked into that. But then also Wayne, and this is critical. If we're left to our own devices when we're afraid, like we are now, and we see COVID barking at the door and we see, you know, all these different outside factors pressing on us and it causes primal fear, we group because we're scared. So we we fall back into that primal grouping of the people who look like us, believe like us, because that's what we do when we're when we're frightened of what we're facing. It's a, it's a natural reaction. And the only way, but the problem with that is then it becomes, it just becomes group dynamics. It becomes blood feud. Mm. Never ends well. I've seen enough blood feuds in two decades of special forces to know that they never end well. You don't have a good outcome from that because all of these clan dynamics are pressing on each other and each group has its own agenda and it's pretty much salt in the earth, kill the firstborn until somebody's left standing. That's, that, that, that's where you see these organizational sinkholes just open up and it's just bodies everywhere. It's ugly. Um, it's only leadership that can, that can create a vision that gets beyond that in-group behavior that brings those emotional temperatures down and bridges across those groups. And I don't see many leaders stepping into that arena. Yeah which is where each of us comes comes to. You know, we need to, we as individuals need to be the ones that step forward yeah. and say, I, I see you, right? One of, the, one of the messages I bring is, I see you, dear human, I see you. And can we start seeing each other again? And that's the bridging of communication. That's the, ultimately the bridging of leadership. I was talking to my mom the other day and you're absolutely right. And, and she's very upset about the polarization of politics in our country and how just how divided we've become and, and, and how angry we are at each other and nobody's listening. And, and, you know, I think it's hard for her because her, her sons were veterans, combat veterans, her grandson's a combat veteran and, or a veteran. And, you know, it's just hard to watch that. And um, we were talking about it and she's like, what can I do about this? You know, other than vote, And one of the things is, and I believe there's actually quite a lot that we can do, but we first, the first thing we have to do, I think is, is, is turn off the source of the agitation. I think people are watching entirely too much 24 hour news cycle and people are spending far too much time on social, social media. I think the first thing I don't, I, I, and you remember this, Wayne, I was on the news for like three years straight talking about ISIS Been on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, Tom Brokaw. I don't go on the news anymore. I don't do it. I I, I don't participate in it. I just don't. And if I do, there's a very distinct reason for it, like talking about veterans issues or something like that, because I've seen I've seen what it does. 
it, it, it plays on our primal fears and it, and it agitates us to a level of sympathetic response where we go tribal. And, 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 and yeah, so I think the first thing we got to do as leaders, regardless of, is we got to turn off the source of the agitation. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, that's great. This is, that's perfect. I, I was just going to say that when we come to a debate, right, when you come to this place where you're really pushing, it, it's like debate and nobody comes to a debate saying, huh, I wonder what the other side's going to say, yeah. you know, right. And, and we show up with what's called confirmation bias. We look for reasons why we're right. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, well, there's another reason. And, and it, it justifies some really horrible thinking and some really horrible behavior. And I love the turn off the source because that's like, you've got to be your own source. You know, you've got to be the one to say, I believe in the power of good and right and love and joy. And, and it's like, you can say that powerfully, powerfully, right. There's nothing wrong with going, I'm joyful. (laughs) But but to, to really choose to be that bridge. Right. We have to be. And and we have that's exactly right. We have to choose bridging trust over bonding trust. We have to consciously choose that we are going to endeavor to create an environment where people bridge beyond their own in groups in favor of something bigger and better. And we have to we have to start to tell the story of what that something bigger and better is. I happen to believe that if we look at our constitution, if we look at what this country is founded on, if we look at the emphasis of diversity that, that is supposed to be in place, e pluribus unum, out of many come one, um, I believe those are all still very valid principles. And sure, uh, we did not get that right. There, there are a lot of social justice issues that need to be fixed, that, that need to be corrected. But I, to my dying day, no one will ever convince me that group dynamics are the way to fix that. They're not. There has to be, in my opinion, a bridging approach to how we do this. We have to fix it together. And we have to find a way to, to bridge beyond our in-groups. And, and in, if we're advancing one group over the other, it's, it's a very slippery slope. And, and again, you're, you're, you're going to have a hard time getting to that bridging solution where you have a sense of abundance, where people feel psychologically safe, deeply connected, and a shared future, which Daniel Cole says high-performing cultures have to have those three things. So, um, you know, we have to decide as leaders, what do we want our own arena to look like? What do you want your business to look like? What do you want your community to look like? What do you want your family? To look like, is it going to be bonding trust where in groups and out groups are fighting over resources and status? Or is it going to be bridging trust where there's a vision that unifies the people in your immediate arena around something bigger? How did, this is interesting because it's, it's like you've got this bridging trust that unifies people that creates this group. Doesn't that create a group that could then be bonded versus bridging Right? Couldn't it at that point just be polarized and go, okay, well, we created our group and now ta-da, our group is better than any other group. And suddenly you've got bonded bonded trust versus bridging trust. And that's why I think it's so important to A, stay, you know, continue to learn about our own nature, to learn mm-hmm. that that by definition, you know, humans are meaning seeking, emotional, 
yeah. social story animals who struggle. That's and we're in other words, we're a mess. <laughs> and and uh, but but you know that social piece, uh, Wayne, is we are you know, uh, um, is it Matthew Lieberman? I believe in the book Social. He says that humans we're the most social creatures on the planet. And we're wired to, the reason that we sit atop the food chain is we do three things better than any other mammal or any other animal. Uh, socialize, mentalize, and harmonize. Mm. We, 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 can, we can socialize. In other words, we can make connections right out of the gate. We can connect at a, you know, with our empathy and reciprocity. Mentalize. We can actually see the pictures in the other head, in the head of the other party. You can, some, you and I can be talking and you can finish my sentence for me. There's no other animal on the planet that can do that. And we don't even really think about it, but we can actually see the movie that's playing in the head of the other party if we're attuned. Right. Yeah. And, and when we do that, this mental coupling happens and oxytocin starts to course through the body. And we start to experience a level of connectedness and reciprocity that's inexplicable, but yet it happens. And or when a story is told and it unifies us across socioeconomic status and race because it's a story of struggle. And then finally, harmonize. We can actually bring your goals and my goals together, and we can move in a common direction. And humans have done it for a very long time, hundreds of thousands of years. I was on a podcast interview yesterday with a guy named uh, Eduardo Lujan. He's Jerry Lujan's dad. Jerry was in Bo's group for a long time. And and Eduardo Lujan um, is a he founded the uh, the uh, uh, Hispanic Cultural Center in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, he is an icon in uh, in leadership in the New Mexican government. Um, he just he's so well respected. He's in his eighties now. And I asked him. I said, Edward, what what's wrong with leadership today? What's going on that's different than when you were, you know, a statesman? And he said, There's no respect. No one respects each other anymore. He said, when I walked the halls of, you know, uh, the, the, the New Mexico capital, when I was a statesman, you know, Democrats and Republicans would rally around certain things. There was disagreement, but there was always civil discourse. Mm-hmm. There was always civil discourse around the issue. And, and we would find a way to harmonize and get it done. Um, and he said, you don't see that anymore. It's gone. And there is no civil discourse. And, and I said, well, well, why is that? And he said, leadership, right? If you want to, if you want to have civil discourse, this gets to your question. Yeah. How do you, how do you prevent that bonding? Bonding trust is going to happen if left to its own devices without active leadership. It is the leader's responsibility to paint the vision of what could be one stroke at a time on the canvas. And let me ask you, when is the last time you saw a leader in politics paint a vision that bridged their group with other groups? I, I can't even remember when I saw it last on either side. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It, uh, pre-60s maybe? Yeah. Uh, you know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. Kennedy, Kennedy used Eisenhower as a, as a mentor and it's like, right. It's like, there well, it's you, right. Yeah. It's interesting. You say that there's a book by Robert Putnam that has actually given me some encouragement. Robert Putnam wrote the book bowling alone. Um, it was a, it was really a groundbreaking book he wrote as a social scientist several decades ago, but it was about how, um, 
Americans have built social capital and then lost social capital. And, and he says that social capital is really the, you know, that trust, uh, that reciprocity that we feel with our neighbor is essential to America. And he talked about a, a French, um, um, I think it was a French diplomat named de Tocqueville that came to the United States in the, uh, in the mid 1800s. And he was reporting back to, to France on how this strange experiment in democracy in America uh, operated. And he wrote back to the French government because he was very impressed at that time. He said, the Americans have figured out individualism rightly understood. Oh, excellent. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. You know, so individualism, but yet with a sense of community, just enough. Um, and the other thing that Putnam says in a recent book that he's written, and I would recommend to your listeners to check this book out if they indeed want to know what's possible for our society in these low trust times. And it's called The Upswing. And again, it's by Robert Putnam. And what Putnam basically asserts in this book is that in the, in the, in the early 20th century, uh, at the turn of the century, from the 1900 into the 1900s, um, America was in a place that is very similar to where it is right now huge uh, gap between the haves and the have-nots. We were, they, you know, it was the Gilded Age. The Industrial Resol- Revolu- Resol- Revolution had separated uh, folks massively from the titans of industry, a very high level of wealth and a small percentage. Um, you had crime was rampant, polarization in politics, immigration was, um, was really unmanageable at that point. Um, and, you know, there was just a lot of strife in the country and, and people thought America was on her last leg. And, and all of a sudden, a movement started in the early 1900s um, that w- ranged from uh, two drunks in Akron, Ohio, starting a little thing called Alcoholics Anonymous because they figured uh, nobody else could get them sober. So they got themselves sober. Uh, the Rotary Club, the Kiwanis Club, the NAACP, Future Farmers of America, the Junior League. I mean, literally every club that you and I knew and that our parents were in that lasted all the way up until 1965, the longest period of social capital, of bridging trust in our history took place. And it was mostly bottom up. It was mostly grassroots. It was people who looked around and said, you know what? Nobody's coming. So I guess I'll do it. I guess I'll form something that that helps, uh, you know, local businesses connect to citizens. We'll call it the I don't know. Let's call it the Rotary Club, you know, and 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 it and it happened. And and then we started this downswing in 1965 that we're still in. And Putnam believes that we're due for an upswing. Putnam believes that the conditions are ripe for leaders to step into their own arena and create these movements like happened during that time, because there was no coherence to it. I mean, yes, Theodore Roosevelt created the Park Service and FDR did the New Deal, but there was no grand strategy. It just happened because things got bad enough that Americans stepped up and said, nobody's coming, I'll do it. I think he's right. Uh, In fact, at Rooftop, our motto for 2021 is we're going to operationalize the upswing. Uh, We're going to create 10 million rooftop. Yeah, we're going to create 10 million rooftop leaders in 10 years. But my message to anybody listening, Wayne, you've got such a great audience is um, I don't think we need to wait any longer for leaders to give us permission to bring the emotional temperature down in our own arena and start modeling what bridging trust looks like. And if we can do that, I've seen it enough time in rough villages when leaders do that, it, you know, fear is contagious, but leadership's more contagious. 
I love that. That's awesome. I believe that each of us is a is a leader, right? You're you're yeah. being watched. Someone is watching you. Someone's noticing how you respond in a certain situation. And and if we agree that nobody's coming, it's up to me, right? Um, it was Zig Ziglar that said, "If it is to be, it's up to me," right? That that we that we choose to step in and own our lives, and we we don't make that protective. We don't turn that into a bonded trust with ourselves, but really make an agreement that that is a bridge to seeing others and lifting others. I believe that leaders lift, right? They lift as they lead and that, that that's our obligation. I, I agree, bud. And, and I will tell you just again, to bring this back to where we started, you know, most by definition, Green Berets go to countries where bonding trust is the baseline of social capital. By definition, I mean, they drop us into the places where you know, there's these in-groups and out-groups competing over resources and you have chaos. But by definition, that's what chaos is, is these yes. groups that are literally, you know, fighting over whatever the scraps are. And there's no, there's no rational into it because each group is advancing its own, its own agenda. Um, again, this experiment in democracy that we have here is a bridging trust environment that recognizes that the group is not at the epicenter of society. The individual, an empowered individual is at the epicenter of society. But the only way you can have that is if you have a, a, an environment where you can bridge beyond your own group and that you have mechanisms like a constitution and rule of law that enforce that and create that. It's, a, it's almost a false system in the sense that it gives safety for the individual to pursue their own path, right? But Wayne, it has to be individualism rightly understood. We cannot abandon our nature or our sense of community and to some degree bonding trust. I mean, it's okay to bond with the people in your family, your community, and, and but, but we shouldn't allow it to that group behavior to dominate how we treat other people. Because if it, if we do allow that by definition, the people that are not in our circle are the enemy. Yikes. <laughs> that's pretty, that's heavy stuff, Scott. That's um, wow. Right. So the, the takeaways here that each of us is a leader, each of us can be um uh, as individuals, we need to be leaders. As individuals, we need to form community. And that community needs to bridge beyond just the, the immediate community that we build. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, a, a couple other things that I would say, um, you know, we are, we are at Rooftop Leadership. Uh, we, are, we are building a, 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 a movement. Of, of empowered leaders and we're taking the green beret skills of, of relationship building and human connection um, and crisis leadership. And we're teaching that now as a methodology, as a rooftop methodology, and we're doing it in a range of ways. And, uh, and I do hope that people will, 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 will come work with us. I hope you and I can continue to work together because our idea is, you know, we teach this methodology and then it informs whatever you're building. You go do your thing. We need you to go do what you're doing. If you're 
coaching a travel team, if you're building a martial arts studio, if you're it's a small business, what we need are responsible leaders who who really understand not just the art of human connection, but the science. They know how to be storytellers, active listeners, uh, those Lawrence of Arabia skill sets that we've developed over the years in special forces. What got us here is not going to get us there as leaders because the trust is too bad right now. So leaders need a new skill set. And, and that's what we're trying to put forward. And, and, and I think that anyone listening to this, what I would say is, Take a look around your environment. Do what you said. Make a conscious decision to to do better, to create a world that is bridging in your own community and and look for ways to make a connection. Like just, you know, just make a connection with folks. Uh, You'll be surprised what that can do because nobody's listening to anybody right now. Yeah. Time to time to listen. Right. Time to be deliberate. You know, uh, I, I you've got this amazing movement, the rooftop leadership is is incredible and what you teach you know it's so good and it's so parallel which is why we're connected you know i talk about being deliberately actively positively uplifting and you're giving people the skills to be able to do that you do that in small groups right you do that in that you've got a couple of books out now right yeah yeah yeah. and we've got another one coming out real soon that's awesome and it's actually called Rooftop Leadership, How Green Berets Lead People Who Are Reluctant to Follow. And um, uh, I can't wait. And I think that's what we all have to do nowadays. I can't wait. That's awesome. So if people want to find out more, obviously, Scott, where where can they where yeah. can they find out about you? Where can they find out about rooftop leadership? Yeah, thanks, Wayne. Um, so uh, rooftopleadership.com is um, is our website. And, you know, I would encourage folks to go there. First of all, we have a whole segment that's totally free, a video series called Leading Through Chaos. Um, that is all about, we filmed it right after the pandemic hit. And I basically took combat lessons from leading in crisis. Uh, and we did a video series for leaders so that they can take a lot of those lessons and put them under into play in their own arena. And it's like 600 people have signed up for it. It's pretty cool. Um, but that's there. It's free. Um, there's a, there's also a, uh, our vlogs we do weekly um, that we talk about a lot of these human connection skills. So I'd say just go there for starters. And then we have a rooftop live event uh, where we do for three days, we actually teach leaders how to do these human connections from telling their story, active listening, rapport building, and that's 16 through 18. And that'll be on the website. Uh, yeah. And just, I mean, look, just keep doing what you're doing. I mean, Wayne, you're building such a great movement. I hope that we can continue to collaborate on this because we need as many leaders as we can in the arena. Oh, and we also have a podcast, Rooftop Leadership Podcast, and uh, I think is worth dialing into as well. Uh, it's so good, Scott. You've got so much going on and you are you're making an impact. It's it, you know, I, I wish there were a way of broadening the spotlight on what you're doing so that there would be so many more who could stand up and say, I'm a, I'm a leader. I've been to the rooftop and I've got people Thank behind you. me. Right. So I think we can, Wayne. And I think if we work together on this, we can. I, I believe there's a lot of people out there who are watching what's happening right now and they're not good with it. I really believe that. I really believe that you know, but we have got to stop giving our power away to politicians that we wouldn't let near our kids if they were teachers in a school. Mm-hmm. Agreed. 
Agreed. <sighs> All right. Well, <laughs> I usually like to end on a positive. <laughs> I use positive though, because yeah. I'll just I'll, I'll put it this. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, we do need to end on a plan. And the positive note is this, is like nobody's coming, so we have to do it. But I like those odds. Yeah. I, I like those odds. I don't, I, don't, I don't need someone else to lead me in my arena. Like, I know what I'm building. I know why I was put here. That's awesome. And, 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 and I'm, you know, it's our time to lead. We don't have to wait on anybody else. And I really believe that. I think that's absolutely true. And we've got this deformed definition of what leadership looks like based on the 24-hour news cycle and social media. And it ain't that. Leadership, I saw it time and time again in those little villages that turned into a brush fire. It starts with one rooftop leader climbing up that ladder and standing their ground and holding that ground until the others follow. That's it. And that is the good news. And we, we did it before in the, in, in the, in the early 1900s. And we can, I'm telling you, we can do it again. That's awesome. That's awesome. It does, it does echo uh, so much of what I talk about too. Just love it. Scott, thank you so much. It does. It starts with one. And, and that one is each individual that's listening or watching this. That's, that's you, right? That's, that's when this is in your ears, this is, that's you. You're the one, right? And, And as you said, Scott, I like those odds, right? I know I can count on me to stand up. Right. Yeah. And if it feels reluctant, if you if you're sitting there going, oh, man, I mm, it, that's exactly what it's supposed to feel like. That is what leadership feels like. It never feels like you're going to spike it in the end zone. This kind of leadership is going to make you feel like you're about to throw up in your mouth. Um, and that's OK, because that's actually what people follow when trust is low. They follow that reluctant leader who's yeah. kind of like, I'm not sure I'm the right, but you are the right one. And, and, and that's just resistance, as Stephen Pressfield says. That's just right. self-sabotage telling you you can't, and it means you're inches from the goal line. That's awesome. That's awesome, right? Each of us can – each of us relates to that. That's it. That's 100%. A, I, I, I feel like I'm an imposter every single day. And yet you keep on. It's so good. So oh, good. All righty. Well, uh, anything else you wanted to say? No, man, that's it. I, I, I think this is a, this is a long conversation. I hope we can yeah. have it again. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we need to start by just looking for ways to make a human connection uh, in everything that we do before we advance our agenda, before we try to spew what it is we think is right, make a connection, see the pictures in the head of the other party and, and really try to get a sense of their goals and their pain. And then, and then see if there's a way to bring that together and just, do it one at a time. That's how we do it. That's perfect. My guest today, Lieutenant Colonel Retired, Scott Mann, uh, just a g- amazing gentleman, former Green Beret, has brought us so much today. Thank you for being here. This is, yes, this is one sharp sword cutting through to what matters most. I'm your host, Dr. Wayne Purnell, Dr. P the Outfluencer, and your Powerful Presence Mentor. Thanks for listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with Outfluencer, Dr. Wayne Purnell. For more information, please go to onesharpsword.com.